You're listening to IT Market Buzz, sponsored by Copy Punch IT. Here's your host, Kimberly Duran. As principal of Arcadi Group, Sammy Jaja brings more than 20 years of experience in strategic and product marketing, market and communications and PR, and sales and business development. His career spans almost every aspect of creating great companies, but the greatest portion of his career has been spent in marketing, business development, and entrepreneurship, ranging from IBM to co-founding two startups. What do you think a tech CEO can do to facilitate the best results? Well, the number one thing a CEO could do is really understand what marketing is. So many CEOs view marketing as uh, as an expense rather than as an investment. As such, expenses are typically things that are cut. Investments are things that you expect to return from. And so having the right mindset of, of viewing marketing as a strategic function that you invest in and, and that, that is a core capability within the company really starts from the CEO setting the tone around it. So many times we go into organizations and we'll hear it even from the marketing department. They will say, our company is not a market-driven company. It's not a marketing-focused um, company. And it'll be because the CEO sees marketing as a sales support function uh, rather than as a, a market customer-driven function that really helps drive the strategic value of the organization. So you do find that a lot of CEOs have that mindset? A lot of CEOs do have that mindset. A lot of CEOs that we'll come in and talk to hold marketing in high esteem. Uh, they set the right tone for the company. Uh, they realize that, okay, they may have gotten the company to a certain point of revenue, uh, but to get it to the next level, it's going to require a change uh, in uh, both strategy and a change in approach and go to market, and marketing is going to be the driver of that of that change across the organization. And so they see it as, as that strategic component. They provide a seat at the table uh, of corporate decision-making for, for the marketing team and for the marketing executive. Metrics have become an absolute requirement, particularly given the tech.bomb phenomenon that occurred 10 years ago when you know a lot of money was spent on marketing and, and there was only a certain amount of it could, could be really be justified. Uh, and the most recent you know, great recession, for lack of a better term, marketing has forced to become more analytical and measurement driven. Uh, and CFOs with CEOs have really forced the conversation around, if I'm going to spend so much, what am I going to get for it? Mm-hmm. But that's a good discussion. I mean, if you're, if you're asking that discussion, you're still seeing it as an investment. Uh, and seeing it as strategic, you'll see in the in the in the last recession, a lot of companies did not significantly cut back their marketing budgets. They they felt that that would hurt their top line, and those are the ones that are probably that have come out stronger as a result of it. Absolutely, metrics are key, and 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 the CEO can kind of help define marketing's role within the organization around that. A lot of CEOs come from the mindset of show me, show me, prove it to me, let me see it. Um, and the good news is with a lot of the digital marketing programs and tactics and capabilities that are out there today, you can show the CEO uh, something. And you can run a test program of various types using search marketing or pay-per-click marketing or uh, email marketing and show some results without some humongous budget. And it won't take long if to uh, be able to measure those results and and have a you know an opportunity or two show up in the pipeline and hopefully close 
for you to start to, to show the metrics around that. Uh, my experience has been that if you can do that, you start tying yourself to revenue, then you quickly, CEOs will quickly say, well, how much more can we invest in that and, and what would we get from it if we, if we did more of that? And of course, it only works if, it, if you have the results to back it up. Yes. Because, yes. right, it, the opposite phenomenon will occur if, if you do a $25,000 test or whatever the case may be and no results, no opportunities, no pipe came out of it. So. And we're finding that used to be to get into 10, 15 years ago, to get into the game of advertising, you had to have a fairly large budget to even make a dent. You mm-hmm. know? You know, so if you, had, if you wanted to get into a print advertising game, I mean, you needed a half a million dollars mm-hmm. um, to get into that game and try to make any influence on the major IT trade publication. That mode of thinking is totally obsolete today. You don't need one-tenth of that in order to start implementing some digital techniques and starting to make a, you know, uh, you know, something that you can measure and show. And part of that is good, but part of that has been part of the reason that, that the budgets have shrunk is because CEOs are demanding more with less. You know, why should I invest over here and here and here if these tactics are just fine? Mm-hmm. And so some longer-term things like strategy development, brand development, awareness development can sometimes take a back seat to things that are very tactical or, or lead-oriented in the short term. Mm-hmm. Still, marketers still need to find that balance because otherwise you can fix a shorter-term lead flow issue by turning up the budget, but you're not going to fix a longer-term image awareness or lack of awareness issue by just turning up the budget one day. You know, that's something that you've, you've got to kind of keep both the, the, the short-term programs and the long-term programs kind of working at the same time. Yeah, I would assume in the past year a lot of people have been focused on short-term results. <laughs> They've been focused in many ways on survival, but once you get past survival, um, yeah, they're focused very specifically on what's going to help you know, within three months or six months or nine months. We've seen a lot of our clients really define their plan. You know, we used to do one-year plans and two-year plans and three-year plans, but now clients are asking for three-month and six-month plans. You know, what do we need to do in the next 90 to 180 days to, to affect change? And particularly in the B2B world and the technology world where you're on a, on a cycle of, of purchasing, sometimes you can't affect, you might be in July or August of a year, you, you may not even be able to affect this year's revenue stream. So you're starting to already start to look out at how am I going to affect 2011. Do they have any other misconceptions that you run into about what tactics work? Like maybe they think that marketing is brochures, some ideas like that that might not be actually serving them? Yeah, you hit it right on the nose. I mean, they will come with preconceptions, and the preconceptions and potentially vary greatly on their previous experience. So mm-hmm. if they have been at a company where they, you know, a company successfully used an inside sales team, let's say, to market a product, they will say, well, that's the way we need to market our product. Well, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. And so the preconceptions tend to be very specific to their experience set. So if in another company they may have been successful without a lot of marketing because they, let's say they sold through a channel and the channel was extremely successful in that, in that specific market, they'll bring that experience set into this and say, well, the only way we can sell this product is through a channel. Or the only way we can sell this product is through an inside sales force. Or what we need is a, and they'll go right back to their experience. Well, in fact, chances are that just because it was done that way for that previous product and that previous market against that previous target set doesn't necessarily mean that that is the right approach to go to market for this product in this market for this specific target set. Mm-hmm. And so you fight those preconceptions of that previous experience. 
sometimes you'll get CEOs who just admit, I don't understand it or I don't know marketing. I'm looking for you, you the CMO, you the VP of marketing, you the marketing agency to tell me what the right approach is to go to market. That is actually a good place to be in because then you have yeah. the chance as a marketing professional to step back, look at the market, do your analysis, do your research, perhaps try a few test programs and come back and say, I really think this is the type of message, the type of approach, and the type of program set we should start down the path of, of implementing for our company in order to get to market and to generate revenue quicker. Let's jump to B2B buyers. I read somewhere that tech buyers automatically don't believe 86% of what they see from vendors. Did you have any thoughts on how vendors can cut through all of that chatter? We do what we call a competitive messaging audit, which is to take the parameters of why people buy, the benefits, how they buy, the criteria, and why they might select you, the differentiators, and map those against what the competitors are saying against those three areas to see what everyone's saying. And it's a very interesting exercise because what you'll find is you might go into a, a company and they'll say, well, you know, our customer service is really, you know, our commitment's unbelievable and we're great at it and blah, blah, Well, you go to the other six competitors and, you know, front on the web page or somewhere, it's, you know, we're the best in customer service and, and you know, our our commitment is, you know, who's co- who knows who's committed to more to customer service. I mean, it's such a trite phrase anyway. So, mm-hmm. so you'll start to see that everybody starts to look alike, start to say the same thing. And, and, and that's why buyers get turned off and say, well, you know, everybody says they have that feature or that capability or that spec or is committed to customer service. And the way to break through, we find there's two key ways to break through. One is with a metrics-based approach. And the second is with a customer-based approach. And if you can add the two together, even the better. The metrics-based approach is, is saying, rather than saying, our customer, we're committed to customer service. Our customer service is great. Okay, well, no one cares about that because no one's going to believe that. And everybody would mm-hmm. say that. But if you could say, our customer service is great. We handle 98% of all calls within the first hour they're received and solve 92% of them all within a 24-hour period. If something is not solved within three days, we escalate it and typically can solve it within one week. Um, and only 0.1% of all of our calls are handled within that go past a week. Okay. Well, now you're like, oh wow, that's a really great customer. Now I've given you something. You know, I've told you what great customer service means. You know, in a help desk capacity, for example, or. Um, you know, we have you know we have a net promoter score of 82, which is 60% higher than industry average. Uh, our average customer service person has 7.3 years of experience. The industry average is 2.6, um, and we um, you know have won the JD Power Associates da 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 the last four years. I mean, now again, you're putting some metrics, something real, against it, and if you can put something real against it. That tends to break through the clutter. The other thing is the customer. So that's a metric-driven approach. Is the customer-driven approach? That's where the customer says, "I've used this. I did it the old way. I tried two other solutions. I tried their solution. Let me tell you why this is so great." Now, if you can combine the two of those, even better. So now the customer stands up and says, "I saved forty percent." by getting rid of the paper in my operation by using this document management system. We saved, the system paid for itself in four and a half months, 
and um, we're going to roll it out to three other divisions. Uh, I can't say enough about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that we find that tends to break through the clutter um, more than just coming up with you know the newest phrase on how we can say we're great at customer service or we you know now sometimes the client has you know a, a, sometimes you actually have a product set that in of itself is so highly unique and you you have some IP and you have some capability and you're just ahead of the market and you can just explain what you do and it's enough mm-hmm. but we find that you know in the 80/20 rule that is in the 20% or less we find that most people are in a very competitive market. The differentiators uh, may be real, but they're they're um, they need to be marketed in very specific ways. And and the the, the more you can um, the more you can break through with real metrics, the better off you'll be. Because if you if you find a phrase that works, trust me, your competitor will realize it's working within two months, and that phrase will be on their website. <laughs> but what they can't do is if you can say. 98% this and four months around on that and, you know, we own 62% of the market. Whatever you can say, metric, they can't copy that, mm-hmm. right? They could copy your phrase, but they can't copy your your customer saying it. They can't copy your metrics-driven results around it. I love that. I love things people can't steal. One of the things that we think is really critical in connecting with buyers is understanding, it just gets back to pretty basics of marketing, but understanding really the emotional triggers and the things that people get excited or passionate about, the things that really kind of drive them. And oftentimes we walk through an exercise with our clients and we ask them, you know, well, what does your solution or capability or product or what service or whatever it is, what does it do? They want to talk features. Well, it does this and does this and does this. No, no, not what does it do, but really what does it do for someone? Mm-hmm. And really understanding, you know, what are the triggers? And sometimes it, it gets them to stop and think about, well, why does somebody actually even really buy my product? Or why does they even really buy my service? What is the real driver? In some cases, it's fairly simple. And when it's simple, like there's a regulatory issue, it's coming down, it's, you know, six months from now, everybody's got to implement it. Well, great. That's, it's pretty easy to message around that. But a lot of times it's, a, it's, it's much different to understand, well, what really drives the sale of this product? Is it somebody who's trying to reduce risk? Is it someone who's trying to increase revenue? Where does this ultimate, what's the ultimate trigger on, on a purchase? And mm-hmm. if you can find that, usually we find that it's tied to more of an emotional benefit. It's tied to mm-hmm. something like fear or greed or ego or risk. It's not tied to a spec on a data sheet. Mm-hmm. And so understanding those triggers, understanding why people buy, uh, is kind of the first step. The second step is understanding how they buy and what criteria do they go through. And it's interesting. Companies often tell us, we ask very typical, what is your unique selling proposition or differentiator? And, And they'll say, oh, well, we do this better, we do this better, we do this better, we do this better, we do this better. Great. And then we walk through an exercise of how do they actually buy? What what do they look, what do buyers use to select one solution over the other? Mm-hmm. And you hope that the selection criteria and your differentiators align, right? <laughs> and they'll have a lot of selection criteria. We'll go through an exercise. People will come up with 17. Say, okay, well, that's great. Now tell me the three that really, right? Because I may go and try to shop for something, a car, a personal computer, 
you know, whatever. And I may be considering ten things when I'm looking at the car, looking at the person. Mm-hmm. But it comes down to two or three things. Ultimately, I'm going to make my decision based on a couple of things. Either it's price or something, right? And so you try to drive to those two or three or four, and you try to align those and understand, well, how well do those align with what you said you're unique about? Because if they don't align very well, then we need a lot more education up front to help people change the how they buy, right? We need more education to say, you know what, you're selecting across these criteria, but you really need to be thinking about these other ones too. Mm-hmm. If you're not thinking about these other ones, you're really missing something. And make those important up front because if you don't make them important up front, well, when they go down the selection list, your differentiators don't match up with what's, mm-hmm. what's important to me. So the second step then is really the, um, the how do they buy. And then the third is that differentiator set. The third is specifically the selection of you. Why would somebody select you? And the the better those are aligned to the one, which is why they buy, and the two, how they buy, the easier your job is. Um, if they are not um, uh, aligned with those, then we've got some work to do either in <laughs> company or, or educating the consumer set on why they need to believe, you know, think that something else is really important. Mm-hmm. Check out Sammy's insights into the unique problems of SaaS marketing in part two of our conversation. You have been listening to IT Market Buzz with your host, Kimberly Duran. Please visit our sponsors at www.copypunch.com.